welcome to the last episode in the evidence-based EdTech series, a joint venture with Educate Ventures Research and the EdTech Podcast. I'm your host, Rose Luckin, Professor of Learner-Centered Design at UCL's Institute of Education and founder of EVR. Now, in this series, we've explored the role of evidence and what we think the role of evidence should be when it comes to the development of effective educational technology for schools, homes, universities, the workplace. And we've looked at how attitudes towards research, evidence and data have changed and the expectations of stakeholders. In the previous episode, we spoke to representatives from a social disruptor, an activist academic collective and a charity built to empower deaf and hearing impaired learners because we wanted to focus on inclusive technology. And we touched on the fundamental truth that data and context are key. So for this last episode in the series, we really wanted to broaden our horizons and to look beyond the UK and push a little bit further the borders of the sorts of questions we ask about diversity, equity, inclusion and ethics and the way that they manifest within the EdTech ecosystems across various different countries around the world. And so it's wonderful to have here with me Jane Mann, who's Managing Director of Cambridge Partnership for Education. And I've known Jane for many years and have come to really respect the work that she's been doing. And it's absolutely fascinating. So I know we're going to have a great discussion about these international perspectives on EdTech, particularly around equity and inclusivity. So we might take it as read that UK EdTech and the educational ecosystems concerned with inclusivity have started to gain momentum. But given your experience in international education reform and the way that those different systems are developing. What's your perspective on the way the international scene is moving when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion, and how different is it from the UK? Thanks, Rose. Yes, uh, as you said, uh, at Cambridge Partnership for Education, we work with governments and organisations around the world to support transformation in their education systems. And I think it's important to preface my answer by saying that at the heart of the approach is understanding the unique national context and all the elements of a specific education system and how those elements interact with one another. Because that is absolutely essential to designing and implementing effective change. Because in order to have a strong education system, you need all those elements in the system aligning with one another. And a change in one part of the system will have ripple effects, which you need to understand in advance. So what works in one country might not work in another. I think also when we think about inclusive interventions, we need to be clear that we're actually talking about good interventions. Um, when it rather than interventions for end users with some uh, physical or neurological disabilities, for example. Because I think that in an era of lifelong learning and also immense learning disruption caused by, by war, by global warming, by pandemics, I mean, I think the figure now is 222 million children whose education is disrupted. Um, there is more diversity than ever in, in the who, the what, the when and the how of learning. 
So we're talking about a, a, an extraordinary amount of diversity here. So when we think about what really great interventions look like, we need to be thinking about all of those layers uh, of diversity. So uh, as an example, making digital content compatible with screen readers obviously helps learners who have visual impairments, of course, but it's also really good for learners who um, are breastfeeding or they have repetitive strain or they need to learn while they might be commuting long distances. So I think it's important to keep in mind the, the, the breadth of what we're talking about there. And that good interventions actually should consider the most challenging user cases first to set the bar for accessibility. So in the context um, of national education reforms, which are using technology to improve learning, policymakers need to understand who their segments of users are and which different types of barriers they might face. So those barriers might be uh, language barriers, um, but also equally, it might be lack of electricity, it might be poor digital skills, uh, or it could be lack of, a, of an adult present to mediate the online learning for young learners. So if we make sure we're designing interventions which work for the most challenging use cases, they'll be much more likely to work for the other sections too. And I think one danger is glossing over the nuances of those segments, which will definitely leave needs of some users are met, and those are likely to be the most vulnerable or disadvantaged users. No intervention is going to reach 100% of the segments straight away. So you're not going to get full inclusivity straight away. So it's also really important that policymakers are transparent and manage expectation about which segments they're going to reach first, and when they're going to put in place adaptations to, to overcome the barriers of the other segments as well. So making that really clear up front. When we talk about inclusive ed tech, we're not just talking about the products um, when you look at a reform perspective, but we are talking about the um, technology-enabled learning experience and all the conditions that go around that. So you're talking about alignment of digital content to national curriculum and resources. You're talking about um, integration of nationally procured products into initial teacher training and in-service pedagogy, but things like communications campaigns with parents critically to ensure they understand the value of the text. So it's, it's creating that enabling environment, which is much more likely to lead to success. That makes so much sense. And I'm really interested in several of the things that you've said there. I mean, it's interesting hearing what you say about looking at the most challenging use cases first, because often the temptation when people are developing technology or looking at interventions is the classic, well, let's start with the low-hanging fruit and, and see if it works. And yet, for great reasons, you're suggesting that it needs to be absolutely obvious. And that now you've said it, that seems perfectly clear. But we don't always go that way, do we? And I'm just wondering from what you've said, how much of what you're seeing in the international reform landscape could be applied in the UK? Because whilst we don't have quite the breadth of diversity that, that you're experiencing in many of these countries, there nevertheless is quite a diverse population with amazingly different needs. So, so what do you think we could learn? COVID taught us that actually the global north needs to be listening to the global south a lot more because, um, as you say, the, the breadth of diversity in this country is much more considerable than, than many people may imagine. So things like access to technology, it's, it's not homogenous. It's not 
um, uh, the same experience across the board. Far from it. Equally, um, environments in which learning is supported and um, enabled for, for students. So I think that um, there is a lot that that the UK could learn from other countries, but also that creativity and innovation quite often will spring up from those places where the challenge is greater. So things like the, the low-tech, no-tech um, uh, interventions that were created during COVID, which even themselves actually didn't reach everyone. So when even when inclusive programming is done really thoughtfully, those underlying longer-term inequalities make it, make it hard for them to reach everyone. And one example of that, for instance, is um, in Ghana. During COVID, they had this fantastic learning TV initiative and learning reading radio program. And these were, the TV programs had sign language, there was locally contextualized TV lessons. And on the with the radio programs, there was an accompanying paper workbook, um, there were local language literacy lessons. So these were really fantastic when you think about the, 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 the population that they could reach that maybe don't have access to, to, to technology, like as sort of more complex technology like computers and, and tablets. Um, and they, these initiatives, they had high usage and really positive feedback, but there were still barriers for the most marginalised. So those households where they didn't have radio signal or there were English language barriers or there was no adult present to support that radio learning, or even where they weren't able to receive communication about the scheduling of TV programmes. So <clears throat> I think the lesson is that even in those instances where you think you are breaking down all the barriers, you're probably not. So part of the answer there, I think, is the creativity and the effort from tech providers. But part of it is absolutely government investment in social equity longer term. And inclusion has to be a part of a government's national long-term strategy if we want to see equitable ed tech anywhere. That's that makes a lot of sense. And I'd like to come back to that point about long-term investment that's done in a strategically well thought through way. But it's interesting listening to what you're saying about the way in which we know context is fundamentally the key factor when it comes to the success of so many initiatives. And a lot of the things you've talked about are very much context related. So looking at that example from Ghana, understanding that local context to know that the TV, the radio is a good way through, but there's still going to be barriers. And some of those barriers will even be ones that for people who know the context well, they still aren't necessarily aware of. And I wonder to what extent we are good enough at indexing, so to speak, the contextual factors that are the enablers of the sorts of interventions that, that, that we design, particularly those that involve technology, because it's sometimes quite hard to find that information in what's reported, those really detailed contextual factors that are actually the things that make the biggest difference. There's often lots of information about the technology and the kind of way it could be used and, and the population and, and, and some of the measures that, that, that were used in the evaluation, but not always enough about the real nuances of that context. I don't know what you find in that respect. 
Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, Rose. And I think the only way that you can really understand whether or not you're you're operating in a way that's properly contextually aware is with deep partnerships with those in the context. You need to be co-creating um, and you need to be delivering absolutely in the heart of, of, of where the intervention is, is, is aimed at. And, and I mean that with covering all elements of delivery. So, so in the initial design, you need to be working absolutely hand in hand with, with end users. Um, you also need to be making sure that there's that feedback loop of where the learnings from interventions are being sort of fed into them as they go along. Um, and you need to be listening to, to the local voices. I mean, there's some really great examples of deeply contextualized material, which is having great success, but you shouldn't underestimate the depth of co-creation and iterative work that's gone into that. So one example would be, for instance, um, Sesame Street Workshop. So, you know, think of Sesame Street, absolutely American to its core, originally absolutely intended for the US market, but has been so carefully uh, tailored to local context, particularly fragile contexts like the Rohingya populations in Bangladesh, Syrian refugees and IDPs. Um, and that was done by apps, by throwing themselves into, into the heart of it and, and a lot that, that real co-creation. Another example is Ubongo, which is um, digital content, much of which is locally created anyway, but but not all. And and some of which is just very carefully tailored for a variety of different African contexts. But the co-creation is is the really big part there, uh, because that's the only way that you will really understand the true context. And so that comes back to the question about long term investment that's strategically well thought through so looking at what you've just said or rather listening to what you've just said about contextually aware deep partnerships co-creation feedback loops listening to local populations accepting that all of these things take time and that you can't rush it are some of those things difficult for governments to take on board when often they have quite short-term timeframes within which they feel they need to perform. So is there a challenge and a tension there, do you think? There's a, there's a huge challenge. And most people I've spoken to in government around the world are aware that you can't just cherry-pick policies and expect them to behave the same in different contexts. You know, that, that, that's, that's understood. And there is a wealth of information out there, evidence about, about what, what works. So we've got EdTech Hub Evidence Library. We've got Think Tank White Papers. We've got all of your work. We've got um, local universities who publish academically. But the trouble is that policymakers just don't have the bandwidth to synthesize or, or critically evaluate uh, all of that evidence to make sure that they are um, planning sensitively and, and planning long term. And one of the things that we've done to try and address that is we just launched um, an EdTech fellowship program with HP, which aims to enable um, knowledge and skills exchange across a global network of government officials um, and other leaders in EdTech. And that will start with a cohort from Sub-Saharan Africa. And critically, what that will do is give us the opportunity to um, spend time and mediate um, and unpack and discuss the research against the innovation from different countries. 
because as, as I've said, you know, you can, you can take a really great intervention that had brilliant success in one environment and drop it into another, and it will fail completely just because one condition is wrong. It might be sort of you know, not enough awareness or it could clash with another policy intervention. It doesn't mean that there aren't these amazing high potential ideas which could be built on though. So we're trying to give that space to convene pe- people to come together and understand what great edtech decisions look like in their context. For today's episode of the Evidence-Based EdTech mini-series, I'd like to thank our sponsor, the Brighter Thinking Pod from Cambridge, a place where international education enthusiasts from all backgrounds discuss the challenges faced by teachers in a modern classroom, whilst providing tips and advice. The podcast's panels consist of teachers, authors, key subject figures, and more. If you'd like to get involved, follow them on Twitter at CUP Education and send in your show suggestions. That's the Brighter Thinking Pod from Cambridge, available on Apple, Spotify and YouTube. That sounds like a a fundamental role, that convening of voices from within what the outside eye might seem like a single region, but is actually incredibly diverse. How do you get the findings from such events and such programs into that policymaker forum when they have this very narrow bandwidth? And I know a little bit about the EdTech Fellowship Programme, which is very much aimed at people working in government. So is that a way of trying to break through that bandwidth problem to get the communication to the people who are are making the key decisions. It it really is, particularly because it's focused on the live issues that they're grappling with as well. So it's useful. Um, I think that the, as with anything, having the evidence in a way uh, that it's, there's, is consumable to you in the time you have available is critical. I mean, we're seeing loads of great things like test beds where that evidence is coming out, but having it presented in a way that's going to answer your questions quickly. I think also governments are getting much, much better at recognising that the more that we share findings, um, and first of all, gather the data, and secondly, share it, the better, um, the more successful EdTech will be going forward. So we're seeing that a lot more where Governments are even prepared to to stick their hands up and say that didn't work. And I think that was a really important part of COVID, actually. We saw a number of ministries who uh, obviously rushed to go online, as everyone did, but who a few months down the line were saying, "Okay, this isn't working and this is what we're finding. Initially, those were in quite small, closed roundtable events that I always we used to do one about every month, uh, which I sort of came to see as almost group therapy. (laughs) Because the same ministers were there every month saying, OK, this is where we are now. And you've got these great bilateral conversations that would then go on between two seemingly very, very different countries. So the ministers of, of countries that seemed like they would be really different in um, characteristic, but who were finding exactly the same problem. But they were finding as they discussed it and um, talked about the things that had worked, then they, they got learnings from each other. So the, there's a lot more of that going on now, I think. Um, long-term planning, though, will always be an issue when it comes to policy making and effective policy implementation. I used to 
quote the statistic that the average tenure of a Minister of Education was 22 months, but I think uh, the last 12 months in the UK have blown that one out of the water. Um, I don't know what it is now, but I can tell you it's not a terribly long time. And education is typically not somewhere you look for quick revolution. It's somewhere where you see much longer term evolution. So trying to convince policymakers to take a decision on something, the results of which they may not see, they're unlikely to see, if we're honest, during their tenure, can be difficult. But having that weight of evidence to be able to say, look, this is why this is the best investment you can do. Um, it can really help. One of the things we're finding at Cambridge Partnership for Education at the moment is that our system analysis work isn't starting to take centre stage when it comes to what people are asking for. It used to be that we were very much sought um, for, um, people asked for support for specific things that they'd already decided they wanted to do around maybe curriculum development or assessment frameworks or something. More and more, it's that system analysis piece that they want. And I, and I think the reason is that the recognition that um, in a world changing this rapidly, where resources are, where the call on resources is stronger and stronger from other areas. I mean, we saw a lot of the transfer of education budgets to health during COVID, that sort of thing. Education ministers want to know exactly what is going on in their systems. Because when they know what's going on, they can invest more wisely. And with technology, that is absolutely critical. That is fascinating. And I've got two questions immediately come to mind on that. The first is, to what extent do you think this change has been precipitated by what happened with the pandemic and those early actions that then one had to reflect on and maybe change and learn from and have conversations. Although I do wonder in the UK to what extent we have moved on or not. I think that's an interesting question and I wonder how much that's reflected in other parts of the world. So there's a, do you think that that COVID experience precipitated this increased interest in systems analysis? And then the second question, which I think is related, which is why I'm asking them together, is how do people know the right questions to ask of that systems analysis? Because that's something we see time and time again, is we've got all this data, but but we're not sure what it is we want to know from it. You know, the, the, the fact that we don't always spend enough time working out what the key questions we need the answers to are. Right. So the first one, has has the COVID experience generated this environment where system analysis is, is more desired? Um, yes, I think it has. And I think it's I think it's for a couple of reasons. I think, as I said, it's because resources are more stretched now. So if you do have quite a finite pot that you is smaller than it used to be, you're going to want to invest it in the place that gives the most the best return. I mean, that history is absolutely littered with failures of ed tech policies, which have hemorrhaged resources um, into them, which if you take taken that same amount of money and spent it on um, teacher development, we know would have had much greater impact. So, so really wanting to know where should I be putting um, investment in my system so that, because of stretched resources. But also, as you said, there was that feeling of during COVID of, 
all bets are off now. Everything's different. We are going to do things differently. And unfortunately, I do agree with you that actually that that sense of purpose has not necessarily um, been sustained during a, a less extreme environment. And that does, it's not just in the UK, that's everywhere. I wanted to run, I don't know, a, an approach called Are You Serious? where we took some of those ministers from those therapy sessions who said, you know what, when we go back, I'm not doing it like this anymore. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And I wanted to get behind them and say, right, are you serious? Because if you are, sign up to it. We'll get behind you. We'll we'll help you. We'll put our arms around you and support you in it. But you need to be serious because I think the human, uh, human nature is very inclined to snap back into what was normal as soon as the conditions become normal. So I, I do think we have seen some uh, retraction away from those really amazing innovative ideas, simply because we've been preoccupied, understandably so, with getting things back on track. And goodness knows that is still happening. But also because there's always something else right in front of your eyes that you need to deal with um, that then perhaps is, is preventing that, that greater push for, for innovation. How do people know the right questions to ask? That's a great question, Rose. Um, and I would say that when we work with them, what we do is we make sure they're not they're not starting with the question. We get them to articulate what they want from their system. And it's it's almost like that theory of change approach where you say, so the um the thing we'd like to see is this, and we know what the problem is. The problem is this, and the questions will absolutely fall out of that. And that's really that's our job. So our our ministry partners will say, sometimes bluntly, and this is, I quote this verbatim, we have all of the inputs and none of the outputs, and we just don't know why, which was said to me by one education minister. Sometimes they'll be quite specific, which will be, um, you know, we're not sure whether or not this particular policy, it might be about streaming or about teacher development or something, we're not sure if it's achieving its impact. And what we want is this to be the outcome of it. And then we then get in the middle. Um, And when it comes to technology in those, I mean, you very often find that the the answer is not necessarily where you think it might be. So um, the analogy I use there, I live in a very old house and all of my floors are really wonky. And if I ever have a water leak, the water will appear in one part of the house I know full well that's probably not where it started. It's rolled from another room. And it's the same in the education system. You know, you see that you see the problem emerging in one area, which could have been generated in a completely different one. And with technology, that's so often the case. Um, because the things that will disrupt the intended outcomes of an ed tech policy will very often be nothing to do with, with technology itself. Couldn't agree more, and I love that the wonky floorboards of education. I think absolutely where <laughs> we should think about it. I do find it interesting. I agree about the theory of change. I think it's a really good approach. We also think about the golden thread when we think about data, and that's to try and get people to focus on what's the really key human learning behaviour you want to support, and that's the golden thread. And if we take that. And I think you can combine it with the theory of change, you know, what's the change you want to bring about? And those two things should drive the questions we ask, but so often they don't. And I think 
I can see why the stretched resources, you, you know, that's a an understandable reason for wanting to do the systems analysis. And it's good that people want to do the systems analysis, but really important that they're that that analysis is done from the right perspective, as you've pointed out. Otherwise, it, it could just be a, another waste of money. We, or a way to justify something which perhaps wasn't necessarily the right decision in the yeah. first place. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. I want to go back to the uh, discussion we had a little while ago about the tenure of uh, key decision makers when it comes to policy making and the tension that brings for driving strategic long-term approaches and long-term investment. I wonder whether we need to pay more attention to the agency of the users and trying to increase their voices in this because they aren't just short-term, but their voices are very quiet a lot of the time. And I, I wonder how you think from your experience working across a you know, large range of countries are good ways of empowering that user agency and increasing that voice so that you might have a politician that's not there for very long, but there's a continuity of demand, if you like, from the user that, that they want to be part of the decision-making, they want to be part of that co-creation process. It's it's absolutely clear that where governments are consulting um, ahead of policymaking with their most important stakeholders, which will be those end users, then the policies are more effective, they're more likely to to stick. Um, So having those ecosystems where uh, teachers can, for instance, um, input into decision-making with an evidence-based basis is is really critical. And ways you can do that, so for instance, um, there's a there's a report recently from the Jacobs Foundation, which has got uh, some really great case studies of test beds, test beds where um, teachers can co-create um, with providers, for instance, and the experiences that they have doing that together. So it, there's one in Israel called Mindset Center, where they've got a program where national teachers get CPD points and working hours um, to work with ed tech providers to co-develop products. So that's an example where the policy around listening to the not only what the teachers really need, but making sure that it's what the providers can really provide, um, has been has there's been a policy environment where teachers actually have been given time out to participate in that in a, in a credit earning way, which I mean it's, it's, it seems really simple, it's really unusual, and it's it's really fantastic. We've got more of those test beds coming up: Brazil, um, Switzerland, Qatar. We're seeing more of that, definitely. Which is interesting. I agree completely. And that ties in really nicely with my penultimate question, which is about evidence. As you know, um, myself and and, and many other colleagues have been trying for many years to increase the sophistication of the conversation uh, when it comes to asking what works with educational technology to get beyond this simple what works question to engage organizations in thinking carefully about what they want to achieve this notion of the theory of change or the golden thread and and then how do you evidence the extent to which you are genuinely impacting 
to bring about that change. And yet, whilst everybody acknowledges, oh, that's a great idea, we really need to do that, evidence is really important, I still feel that for many edtech companies, it's a nice to have, but not an essential. And I wonder whether increased regulation is a, is a way forward. We've seen the Every Student Succeeds Act in the US precipitate a sort of semi-regulatory framework where there is a requirement for some evidence. Or whether an answer is more one that involves strengthening the voice of the user again and, and helping the people who are spending their money on the technology, whether they're governments, parents, students, whoever, to be more demanding. And maybe it's a combination of both, but I personally find it very frustrating that in so many instances, the evidence just isn't there. And and how do we get that taken more seriously, do you think? Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking as well when interventions are invested in at whatever level, government level, right down to individual parent level, which don't have the evidence behind them um, and therefore aren't successful. Um, I think the the regulatory environment is an important part of that um, when enacted well. Um, So there are definitely circumstances where robust regulation can help increase um, the inclusivity, for instance, of EdTech. Um, One example of that um, is our work in Pakistan, We were working recently with the Ministry of Federal Education and Professional Training, and that on recommendations for a set of standards and practices for the ministry to use when they evaluate the quality of distance and digital learning providers and programs. In a place like Pakistan, I mean, if you consider just the floods they had recently, those those distance learning and the use of digital is already critical and is becoming more so wherever possible. So the ministry there are aiming to create uh, a framework which will help people to leverage technology um, that will it will improve the impact of distance and digital learning initiatives, which will increase access to education um, for the marginalised and out of school groups as well. So that that greater regulation there is being used, I think, in a really important um, important way, and they're doing the legwork to understand what those standards and practices should look like. So we are seeing that. I think that ability to link evidence to, dis- to decision making, um, again, it's it's critical at any level, whether you're whether or not you're talking about a school investing in something or a government investing in something. And if you do know that there is a way to uh, reliably measure the quality of that evidence, then you could link it to the funding um, and procurement guidelines, for instance. The minute you put a requirement into a tender, it will be followed because the only way that anybody will win that tender is by following that requirement. So if you know that there is great evidence behind it, behind a, a certain approach and you say we will only consider applicants who are showing this or who themselves are gathering the data, showing the efficacy of their work, doing that um, monitoring, evaluation and learning. Um, If you put that into a tender, people will do it. And not only will they do it, but they'll compete on being the best to do it. So I do think there are mechanisms that aren't just around ongoing regulation, but are around setting up the environment from the start that that are very effective. 
And we know from our work across Cambridge that the earlier you introduce the expectation and the expertise and the evidence, the more effective that you will be in baking it in as you go along. Um, much more efficient and cost effective to, to do it that way. Yeah, I really agree with you. I, I think the idea of building into requirements is a great one. And I love the example um, around inclusivity. That makes so much sense. We just have to keep on with this, don't we? Bit of a long haul, but we'll get there in the end. Final question I wanted to ask you, I think it does relate to this. And it's something you said earlier about teacher development. And I think, but please correct me if I remember incorrectly, that you were saying that, you know, teacher development makes a fundamental difference to success of interventions. And yet so rarely is that the thing. And why is that? Because there we have, we've got evidence, we know, and yet it still isn't the priority. Why is that, do you think? Oh, that's a really good question. And it's one I don't have an easy answer for. Absolutely. We know from all the evidence that the number one factor in the success of a reform is the teachers. And goodness knows COVID showed us the absolute necessity of teachers. You cannot simply just transfer education to a completely different medium and, and expect people to know how to, to learn, but also teach overnight. Those teachers are absolutely critical. I sometimes wonder whether some of the less effective teacher development practices have burnt fingers in at government level. So money has been spent on teacher development programs, which because of the way they've been designed have not been effective. And so perhaps ministers have looked for other things to almost build a bypass around that. I also think that investment is initially expensive. The, the, the long-term um, impact of it. it, goodness knows it pays for itself over and over and over again. But it requires very often a lot of infrastructure change as well. You know, you're talking about um, certification, you're talking about the initial teacher training, you're, you're also going to be talking about the upskilling of teachers across the system. Um, and unless that's done really s sort of with full commitment you're tinkering at one end and it's just not going to have any impact at the other. And I think also the one thing that that, that is very often missing, less, less so now, but, but certainly in the past has been missing, is that understanding that teachers are professionals. They, they have expertise and they have input into this. So actually one of the best things you can do is to create environments for them where they can share practice. It takes a lot more um, trust and uh, giving of, of autonomy. Um, but, but once you give teachers time to properly plan, properly communicate, co-plan, whatever, in their day, time for reflection, self-evaluation, sharing of experience, the opportunity on the platforms on which to, um, to share that experience. I'm thinking of things now like the, the T4 teacher uh, community, you know, places where teachers can talk to each other about what's working and not, what's not working. Actually, the outcomes you get there are, are, are tremendous. Um, but it, you need someone at the top to create those conditions for success. And very often it's about actually giving teachers the, the time and the tools um, rather than just more demands and, you know, a day out of their really, really busy schedule where they're just going to, where they sit and listen to somebody and all of the work is piling up behind them. 
Uh, it needs to be properly planned um, at the heart of any reform. That's so interesting. Creating the conditions for success is fundamental, isn't it? And, and what I'm hearing is that we know how to do this. We know how to good, do good teacher development. And we know that it works. And yet it's still so hard to get that prioritised. And I hear what you're saying about failed initiatives, put people off. But there are failed technology intervention initiatives, but they don't seem to put people off to the same extent. No, I suppose with technology, though, that it's the shiny thing. Yeah. Isn't it? That's the trouble. Um, now, in my world, teachers are shiny things. So that's yes. great. But, I mean, let's face it, a, a headline grabber, you know, massive new teacher development program. It's not actually a headline grabber. It's fantastic yeah. and it should be encouraged, but it's not a headline grabber like one laptop per child. Yes. But when we look at the two and we look at which is most likely to succeed, which will give the greatest return, which will be the best for the student, we all know it's the teacher development program. But in that tiny amount of time in which a government can is looking to make those headlines and really you know, prove that they're going to take big action, I think often there is a temptation to, to do the shiny thing. And maybe that's, that's something that's our responsibility, as in we, as people working in the sector, need to be coming up with this really shiny, fabulous evidence, which is headline grabbing around great teacher development, around case studies of where teachers were properly valued, properly um, remunerated, properly supported, and great things happened. I really like that. I really like the idea of making teachers the shiny things rather than the technology. I think that's a great idea and a really lovely place to stop. Thank you so much, Jane. I have thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and I'm sure our listeners will too. And I think it's also huge amounts of learning in here that people can take away and go and explore um, and take things forward in a different direction. So thanks so much for uh, coming on our pod. Thanks, Rose. I've really enjoyed it. My pleasure. I'm really pleased. Well, I've hugely appreciated having Jane here today contributing to the final episode in our evidence-based EdTech mini-series and the second part of the two-part diversity, equity and inclusion uh, part of that mini-series. I hope wherever you've been listening to the pod, you found our discussion informative and practical and that it's given you something to use or to share with your teams, your friends, your peers over the coming days. If you'd like more information on this series and on the wonderful guests who've made the series possible, then please visit the EdTech Podcast website at www.theedtechpodcast.com and connect with us via social media. To see how EVR is keeping evidence at the heart of EdTech, go to www.educateventures.com or join the conversation on LinkedIn. You've been listening to the Evidence-Based EdTech series performed in collaboration with the EdTech podcast presented by me, Professor Rose Luckin, and listened to by you. In the coming months, we'll be launching a new mini-series about the data-driven future of AI in education, extremely topical with ChatGPT and Dawley and the other generative AI systems making so many of the headlines. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with us by listening to the monthly Rose and Kareen EdTech Roundup 
podcast where we'll continue to conduct product reviews, developer, educator and author interviews and look at what's topical in the tech and educational news. Thank you so much for listening to this EdTech podcast. For today's episode of the Evidence-Based EdTech mini-series, I'd like to thank our sponsor, the Brighter Thinking Pod from Cambridge, a place where international education enthusiasts from all backgrounds discuss the challenges faced by teachers in a modern classroom, whilst providing tips and advice. The podcast panels consist of teachers, authors, key subject figures, and more. If you'd like to get involved, follow them on Twitter at CUP Education and send in your show suggestions. That's the Brighter Thinking Pod from Cambridge, available on Apple, Spotify and YouTube. 